Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. From WHQR Public Media, I'm your host, Camille Mojica. This week, Kelly joins us to talk about her latest story on Ayers property and explain to us what that is. And then Ben joins us to talk about a new lawsuit filing. Stick around. real estate law is its own specialty that you can follow in law school kind of gives you an idea of how complicated it might be. Well, over the past couple weeks, I learned just how complicated it can get by reading Kelly's latest pieces on Ayers property. She joins us now to talk about it. Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. I'm here with Kelly Kenoyer. It's been so long, Cammie. I missed you. I have missed you too, even though we sit right next to each other. But not on this show. And it's, our lives are only real on this show. So... That's true. So let's talk about your super cool, interesting latest story. I've been wanting to talk to you about this because I learned a lot throughout your reporting and also reading the story. It's about O2 property, air property, the air. It's not about the air, Cammie. It's about (laughs) heirs as in people who've descended from somebody else, air property. Okay, so air property. Why are you talking about air property? So... Basically, air property is a problem in any state, uh, but it's a very big problem in North Carolina. It mostly seems to impact uh, black families because 70% of African Americans pass away without a will. And when you pass away without a will, your property goes to everybody who could be considered a descendant. Um, So if you have four kids, it gets split four ways. If one of your kids has passed away but left two heirs, then it gets split five ways with those two each getting 12.5%. So you can see that the property would get very complicated ownership over a couple of generations. And sometimes these properties end up split between 20 or 30 heirs. And it's very difficult to even figure out who has any stake in the property. Okay. So do people know that they are heir, that they have an heir property? A lot of the time they do, but sometimes they don't. So in the case that I was sort of digging into, uh, one family member who had a grandparent and then a parent pass away with ownership of properties here in Wilmington, um, she knew she was an heir of these properties. Her siblings knew. Uh, She had family members who were living in those homes, Mm, um, even with the split title for many years. So they all knew that they had a stake in this property. It was just like family property in their minds. But legally, it's more complicated than that. And it gets very challenging when an investor comes in and buys a segment of that ownership from one of your relatives. So why would an investor do that? Is that their whole thing? So some investors do this. This can either be predatory or it can be not predatory. Okay. So sometimes an investor might do this with the intention of forcing that property to be sold. So in those cases, uh, they might just buy a 12% stake and then say, hey, I want to buy the rest of this from the rest of you guys. And if they refuse to sell, then that person goes, well, I'm going to have this go at auction. And I know I got my 12% really cheap. So I'm going to try and force you all to sell. And then they might be able to buy it at auction for below market value, Mm -hmm. making it so that everybody else has to sell their sections. Or they might just sell their 12% cut for a tidy profit because they only bought it for a couple grand. Okay. Um, Sometimes it's that this person is willing to do all the research and find all of the heirs themselves and maybe the heirs don't even know and it's like wow surprise i got a couple thousand dollars for something i didn't even know i owned huh and then a property that was derelict gets back on the market which 
can be good for this community since especially in downtown Wilmington, you may have noticed there are a lot of houses that are just falling in. Those are often heirs property. Oh, really? Yeah, most of the time. Okay. So it's interesting because there can be the predatory version or the non-predatory version. It is a situation that is ripe for exploitation. So not every investor who gets involved with this does shady things, but it's pretty easy to exploit people who are in this precarious position because mm -hmm. a lot of them don't know what their house is worth or they just get all of their information from the person they're selling it to. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for an investor to say, oh, it's a teardown house, so I'm just gonna give you what I consider the land to be worth, and you only have this percentage, and there's all these liens against it, so it's only worth $2,000. You should just take it for that deal. Oh. So often, the main concern that we hear from advocates is that this is a way where black families primarily can lose intergenerational wealth, which is a major problem since we're concerned about intergenerational wealth being passed on in those communities. Okay. You have this property that's it's gone up tremendously in value because it's in downtown Wilmington mm -hmm. and then you lose all of that gain in value as a family because you just sell it to an investor for below market and then that investor gets that profit instead. Okay. So walk us through the reporting of this. First of all, how did this story start? So I've been wanting to report on Ayers property basically since I got here um, because I live next to one. And, oh, um, really? Yeah, I live next to an Air property and I won't tell you my address, but it's, <laughs> it's a house that's falling in and I've seen it get sold to an LLC and then the LLC uh, went bankrupt and then it went back to the Ayers again. And so now I don't know who it belongs to. I think it belongs to about eight people probably. And none of them have looked at it in 10 or 15 years. So. It's, it's kind of a blight on a community when these houses are in this condition. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the people who own those properties have rights. So I've been trying to find a way of reporting this story for a while. And I had a source of mine kind of bring me somebody who is in this situation. Um, the person who gave me the contact is Blair Houts. Uh, he's... You know, he's a man about town, I would say. And so he's been talking to people for oral histories in different communities in Wilmington. And he's found a couple people who are in this situation. So he connected me with this woman named Dolly, Dolly Reddick White. Um, and she is the main character in my story on the family's side of this transaction. Okay, but you've been wanting to report on Ayers property for a while. Why did you need a person? Like, why was Dolly necessary? I mean, otherwise, it's just like... There are houses that are having problems. <laughs> and uh, it's it's kind of hard to figure out where these transactions are happening unless you're kind of told about them because otherwise it just looks like a deed shifting around on oh. public documents. So I don't want to go through every single address in downtown Wilmington <laughs> to find these. Uh, so having one come to me was really helpful. And then I was able to figure out who was buying this property piecemeal by looking at the deed records for the property that was in question. That made it so that I could look up the, the LLCs and then find the contact info for the investor. And then I could ask the investors what they were doing and why, um, which freaked them out. <laughs> the investor, <laughs> Garrett Coster, who is the money guy in this transaction, when I called him, he about panicked. He did not expect the media to be calling him. I think this was the first time he's put money up for an air property. Okay. So he was shocked to be called by the me media. Um, the guy he works with has done this for years. Um, and so I ended up interviewing him because he's more the expert and he's the actual person doing these transactions. Gotcha. Uh, so that was Ray Thomas, and he's one of my main sources in this story as well. Um, and I mean... 
I've talked a little bit about how the investors get the profit from these transactions, but I also, having talked to Thomas Ray, seen I've seen how much work this is. It is an insane amount of work to track these people down. He goes all up and down the East Coast looking for family members. He found a property that was split between 22 different heirs. And then he went to all these different heirs, figured out which ones had died and which ones had not. He had in the deed confirmations that somebody had passed away from family members or neighbors or friends who knew them mm -hmm. that were notarized. Like he tracked down every bit of this property he could. He was able to clear the title that way. He okay. bought it for a total of $40,000 from the entire family. This was a lot that didn't even have a house on it. The two neighbors had made their backyards bigger, <laughs> each taking half of this lot. Like nobody knew this was even a lot except for him. Oh. He chases down all of these different people. They get a little bit of money. He sold it. Uh, he resold it for $30,000 in profit, but it took him months to do this. I looked back into the deed record that he made. It started in July. He probably started researching this months before that, and he didn't close it until October. So. He made a profit there, but he also did a lot of work to make it happen. Yeah. And that money would have been lost to the family members without him doing that. So it's not like it's an inherently predatory. It can kind of be mutually beneficial in certain situations. But when it's done less consensually, which is what happened with Dolly, it's a little bit more exploitative. And there's a lot of he said, she said in this case where Thomas Ray says that she did consent to sell and then she changed her mind and she says she never did that. So it's a little bit of a mess. Um, and I don't know what those conversations were. So I cannot attest who's on the right side of that, but it's getting down to becoming a legal case with a partition sale being forced in court. What is a partition sale? That is something I had to do a lot of digging on. <laughs> did you have to learn about it? I really did have to learn about it. <laughs> and I called lawyers and I called uh, real, real estate agents and talked to all kinds of different people about this because it's super complicated and weird. But basically, if you are a part owner in a property, you can force the other part owners of the property to go to court and then the court can mandate a sale. Okay, so let's say you and I own a property half and half. Mm -hmm. and I want to sell it, but you don't. I could force you to go to court with me, and then the court can say, eh, you gotta sell it, or no, you don't have to sell it. Yeah, so what you can say is, I am so sick of owning this property with you, you <laughs> never pay the taxes on it, you're a terrible co-owner, and I just wanna be rid of the whole thing. Okay. I'm gonna take you to court, and then you file a partition action. Uh, we go before a magistrate who says, you know, I can see that Kelly's not been paying the taxes and you have, that's pretty frustrating. So we are gonna force this to go to a sale. It almost always ends up going to a sale or a oh, settlement. Okay. The only cases where it doesn't is if there's fraud and or oh. something like that. Like if you basically put your name on the deed illegally oh. and I could prove that there was fraud, then it wouldn't end in a sale. Okay, that makes sense. But that's pretty rare for obvious reasons. Yeah. So, when it goes to the partition sale, typically what happens is you say, I want to sell. I say, hey, I don't want you to. And the court goes, well, she has the legal right to get out from under this property. So we are going to sell it at auction. Okay. And then we split the profits. Sometimes the judge or magistrate will say, because Kelly's been delinquent on taxes and Cammie's been living there and has been putting improvements into the house, we are going to take out that tax section or whatever profit or whatever, we're going to take a little bit from Kelly's side and give oh, more to Cammy. Okay. Okay. Got yeah. it. So it just sort of depends on how it goes. One attorney I talked to though, um, and this was the most fascinating part. He wants to see some reforms around partitions, 
where the court is willing to explore alternative options that are more beneficial to that person. So this is a really in the weeds example, but okay. I'm going to explain it to you. Say there is a 60-year-old woman who's been living on this property for 20 years. She owns a 20% stake in it, and a company ends up owning the other 80%. Okay. So she's been living here for 20 years. She wants to die in this property, but she only owns 20%. There's no way she could put the cash up to buy it at auction. Yeah, okay. This attorney said traditionally what would happen is she would get 20% plus a little bit because she's been maintaining the property, and then they would force the sale. And the company that is trying to force the sale could potentially buy it at auction, basically just getting that 20% from her for whatever it sells at auction. Wow. So that's how it traditionally could happen. He suggested that courts could be more creative about it. And this is something that they could do under current state law, or they could modify the statute to outline these possibilities more clearly. Okay. But what could happen is the lady who owns that 20% stake, knowing that she's been there for her whole life and it's her family property and all she wants to do is stay there until she can't stay there anymore, the court could say, okay, we are going to allow the full sale of this property, but on the deed there will be a restriction that nobody is allowed to take possession of the home until this woman passes away or moves out. So she would get the benefit of staying in that family home until she passed away. Hmm. The company would still get the profit, but it would kind of be a delayed action. Okay. So an investor could potentially say, oh, I'm willing to wait. You know, I know this is just going to go up in value anyway. And this little old lady takes good care of it. So basically she can be a tenant who's living there for free until she passes away. That kind of thing. Okay. That's super interesting and unique. There's not a lot of case law around partitions in North Carolina currently. Um, and there's also not a lot of detail written into the law. It's just intended to be like an equ an equitable split, more or less. Okay. So this is currently possible, but it's never really happened Why? as far as we know. Because it's a lot easier to just put it up at auction. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's fair. And I mean, courts just... They typically will follow the exact letter of the law or follow typical case law. That's such a complicated way of interpreting the law mm. that it probably would be ripe for an appeal. Okay. I'm assuming. Um, and none of this is legal advice, but it was quite interesting. And honestly, there's not a lot of attorneys that even understand this stuff. There's very few in North Carolina who understand partitions. So trying to make the case for this, there's not anybody who's been able to do it oh. so far. But it's an interesting application of the law that may be ripe for exploration. Well, Kelly, thank you for teaching me a whole bunch of stuff. Because when I was reading the drafts, I was like, I don't know what any of this is. And I'm learning. It I took me so long to write because <laughs> it was so complicated. Well, thank you for reporting on this. It's super interesting. And now I know what an air property is. You're welcome, Cammie. Ben joins us now to talk about a recent lawsuit filing. And just a note, this segment contains mentions of sexual assault that may be triggering or disturbing to some listeners. Welcome back to the Keep Your Rundown. I'm here with Ben Shockman. Hello, Ben. Hi, Cami. This week, we have a little bit of a quasi-update, but not really. We New things have come up. You have a document in front of you. What is this document we're looking at here? Okay, so this is a lawsuit against the New Hanover County Board of Education. Former teacher Michael Earl Kelly and top administrators uh, filed by three anonymous uh, young men. 
Okay. Who, who we're calling John Doe 15, 16, and 17. Okay, but didn't we say that there was a settlement that was settled? So what's going on? Yep. So a couple of weeks passed on CFR. I mentioned that we had probably heard the last of that lawsuit. We are here to apologize. Uh, yeah, I am here with a correction. There is more. Um, so to give you a little backstory, the case that this is, is tech, more or less part of, legally this is a brand new legal filing okay. that was just filed on Thursday this week. But it is really part of the 20-year story of former New Hanover County uh, Schools District teacher Michael Earl Kelly. Okay. Who – this is not an allegation because he, he pleaded guilty to this in Superior Court here in New Hanover County. Um, for over a decade, he uh, abused students. Um, and because of that, some but not all of the students he abused were part of a civil suit. Okay. At, at one point – and especially when it was initially filed, that civil suit um, contemplated being a class action suit. Super quick. Can you explain what a class action suit is? Happy to, yeah. So a class action suit basically says, we're going to go to court and we're going to win because we're going to prove that, that there was negligence and other wrongdoing on behalf of the school district. Yeah. If you meet certain criteria, then you're eligible. And you may have seen infomercials for this on TV like, the Lejeune stuff. The Camp Lejeune. Like, if you were stationed at Camp Lejeune between 1975, <laughs> like that you kind of You may, thing. yeah. Yeah, or if you drove a 1975 to 1985 the, Honda Civic. The Roundup Weed Killer stuff. The Roundup Weed Killer stuff. So you don't have to be part of the lawsuit. You don't have to be a plaintiff. You don't have to go to court. You don't have to have a lawyer. But if you qualify for these certain criteria, you could get compensation. Exactly. And they walked away from the class action filing because they said, the attorneys for the plaintiffs basically said, we are confident that there are more victims of Michael Earl Kelly out there. But we feel like in order to move this case forward as, as efficiently as possible to get justice for the victims, we feel like everyone who is going to come forward right now it has come forward. But that didn't foreclose the right of other victims to come forward in their own legal filing. Okay, I was just about to ask, does that mean that no other victims were allowed to come forward then? Like that was their last chance? No, and sometimes there are settlements where they'll say, this is the only shot. So we're not going to do like this settles. See, well, that's why I'm thinking, right, because our, our Lejeune reporting is that the federal government gave them a specific date that they have to file by. Otherwise, yep. that's it. So what's at stake here is whether or not um, you are covered by the statute of limitations. OK. OK. And so because of the way things work and because of some legislation called the Safe Child Act, which is still kind of in limbo, mm -hmm. but right now is still um by and large, in force, as far as I understand. Okay. Um, as far as I understand, under the current laws, all three of these plaintiffs are within the statute of limitations. They are allowed to file. Okay. Eventually, that will run out. You don't have an unlimited amount of time. Yeah, yeah. So I can't say that there won't be more after this, and this particular lawsuit could add more people, as the previous lawsuit did. Mm. When that first lawsuit was filed, it was only a few. And it eventually grew to 14 plaintiffs. Um, so it wasn't, oh, I didn't know that. So it wasn't yeah. 14 at the very beginning? No, no. Oh, oh. Um, I think it was just a handful. Okay. And so o over the years, more and more plaintiffs were added. So these are three new plaintiffs. Um, you can find a copy of this if you want. There's good and bad to doing that. I should warn people, there is disturbing graphic material in here. Um, on the other hand, what's valuable about this document is that 
the previous lawsuit that we've talked about on CFR and covered mm-hmm. here at WHQR for years um, unfolded over years. And there was active investigations both on the criminal side and through the process of discovery, which is you know how you get documents in a civil case. Mm-hmm. And there were multiple amended complaints. I think there were actually three different amended complaints that came after the first one that presented new evidence. Oh, okay, okay. And so if you want the whole story... You had to do some collage work and sort of, look, you know, look at the timeline and, and put all these documents together. This new complaint filed this week actually does have a, a pretty good introduction and summary of the facts. So it's all in one place. A lot of it is in one place, um, including some, you know, some new evidence that I haven't seen mm. in other in other places. Because remember, the the previous civil suit was headed to trial, um, and then there was a settlement. So there's stuff that those attorneys knew about after their last filing, but before the settlement, that never made it to the public. Oh, okay. Um, I don't think there's anything here that will change anyone's mind about what happened or how sad it was. Yeah. Or, in my personal opinion, how negligent the school district looks. That's mm-hmm. not a legal judgment. That just it, it just seems like there were opportunities for the school district could have done more, mm-hmm. um, and that's always been the plaintiff's allegation. So the. What happens next for this is really going to be similar to what we saw before. This is not going to be a fast process. Um, so this is could potentially take years again. This could take time again. And, you know, once again, the, I think the first thing that will happen is it will – we'll have to see whether or not the um, insurance companies will cover them. It will cover the school district because through a weird quirk of the law, you can only sue the government if the government is insured for something. I know that sounds weird. But okay, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. You can only sue the government, like you can sue them. Yes. If they are covered for the thing you are suing them for. Yes, and there's a major exception, which I'll touch on in just a second. But for a lot of things, you can only sue the government if they have insurance for something because they're basically, by having that insurance policy, they're admitting that they're liable. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that, that makes sense. So the exception to that is... If your U.S. constitution or state constitutional rights have been violated. Then you can just sue them. Constitutional claims give you the right to cut through what's called sovereign immunity or government immunity and because um, the constitution outranks everything. And so one of the claims is that their right, these plaintiffs' rights to uh, a proper education, which is guaranteed under the North Carolina state constitution, mm. uh, has been violated. So you hear people talk about the constitutional claims in these cases, that's kind of what they're talking okay, about. Okay, so they're cutting straight through. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so there's a lot of claims in here, and there's a lot of allegations, many of which will be familiar to people who have followed the story. Um, so, yeah, as I said, the first step will be whether or not the insurance companies uh, will cover them, how much coverage they will offer. In the past, the school district actually sued its own insurance companies, yes. arguing about how much coverage they had. It will depend how many years this took place over for these three plaintiffs. Because that's how insurance companies pay out. There's a maximum amount for like each uh, year of coverage, so it'll get very convoluted and very very complicated. Um, so we won't have easy answers from this anytime soon. Will any of these things be like public conversations, as in like school board talking about insurance coverage? I highly doubt the school board will talk about it. They will have to file in court, um, and as you and I have talked about on CFR before, that's kind of better um, because you can't really. You have to say it plain. Yeah, it has to, to be on there. You yeah. have to lay it all out in print. 
And so you can't kind of hem and haul and hedge like you have to write it down. Um, the other thing I think is interesting about this is um, they are reiterating with a little more specificity about what they would like the school district to do because the settlement included not just the financial payout, but also promises to make certain changes. To how the school operates yeah. with certain things? Yeah, um, in terms of Title IX compliance, in terms oh. of responding to complaints. Okay. Um, and so one of the things they are asking for in this case is that the school hire a, uh, a special master. Um, basically, that they hire someone to oversee who is going to um, to do this. They're asking to appoint a special master to monitor compliance with either the party's settlement or the court's judgment for up to five years. Um, so... Basically to make sure that they're following the rules. Kind of, yeah. And to hire like a basically like a compliance officer um, to make sure they are doing what they have said they were doing. Because for years, the school board had said, oh, we've already made all the changes we need. To how they process some of those complaints. Yeah. And I don't think the plaintiffs or their attorneys were ever satisfied with that. Okay. So now they want someone to actually be hired to be like, no, this person's actually going to make sure that you are doing what yeah. you said. Okay. Yep. And they're still asking for training for the staff, for students, for parents, for the school board. Um, because one thing I've heard from the plaintiffs directly is that their biggest fear is that they've gone through something awful um, without what they feel is meaningful systemic change to prevent it from happening again. Hmm. And I will say... There have, I mean, it's worth noting, there are, there have been changes at the school district. Um, the culture has been changed. A lot of people, there was a mass exodus of people who either, in the opinion of some of the people I've talked to, didn't take this seriously, looked the other way, mm. ignored it because they thought it was exaggerated. I've never personally found evidence that someone was like maliciously negligent, mm. like that they knew Michael Earl Kelly was abusing kids and was protecting him. That's okay. an allegation I've seen many times. We've heard it at call to the audience at school board meetings. I've seen it on Facebook. I've never personally seen evidence for that. Okay. I have seen evidence of a lot of negligence, a lot of ignorance, a lot of unwillingness to take complaints seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, the best way to deal with that is to get rid of those people because they seemed so incalcitrant, recalcitrant, so so unwilling to change Yeah, um, that, you know, all those people are, are now gone. So my hope is that having fresh administrative staff at the school, um, you know, and I mean, this will take political will, too. Like the, the current board has said to me on various occasions that they feel like they inherited this problem. The current school board, you mean? Yeah. I mean... Many of the school board members were elected after Michael Kerr. Uh, actually, I, th I think almost all of the school board members now were elected after Michael Earl Kelly was arrested. Yes. And that still was a big issue at call to the audiences before this latest round of school board members was elected. Yep. That was actually a really big point in some of their campaigns was about, you know, grooming and, and things of that nature happening in New Hanover County schools. Yep. So... You know, we have a long walk ahead of us um, with these next three plaintiffs. And again, we could see more plaintiffs uh, as well. So I am going to add one possible positive framing of this, even though this is a tragedy. The fact that more people came forward means that they have some faith in the justice system that they will 
either get their day in court or that they will get a settlement. Um, and as we've talked about before, they're not trying to win the lottery. They Many of the victims that I've spoken to need money for therapy. They need money for mental health. Um, they need money to get their lives back on track because many of them, because of you know trauma and PTSD and things like that, have missed out on opportunities and employment. They have not lived a full life, and they are trying to get back to some semblance of a full life. Hmm. Um, so the fact that they came forward meant that they um, do not feel hopeless. And I think there's something to be said for that. Ben, thank you for being on the show with me this week. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the Cape Fear Rundown. Check out our show notes for relevant links and titles to the music we use this week. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or just general feedback, feel free to get in touch. Feel free to shoot me an email at cmojica, that's M-O-J-I-C-A, at whqr.org, or you can find me on X at Cami Reports. I'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Camille Mojica, and I'll see you next week.